It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 98, Once More. Unto the trench. Having been dealt a death blow to his cause of focusing attention on Kitchener's incompetence during the Dardanelles campaign by the death of Kitchener, Churchill's quest to clear himself became all but impossible two weeks later when Prime Minister Asquith announced the altering of his decision to releasing the records to the public. So when Winston charged on 10 Downing Street, demanding to know why the reversal, Asquith was relatively honest in his reply. If he were to release these records, future members of the War Council would be less likely to speak their minds when trying to solve whatever conundrum, knowing their remarks might one day afterward be made public. Achieving nothing here, Winston then made for the new War Minister, the promoted David Lloyd George. But after Winston laid down his charge that the Prime Minister had promised the people to release all related documents, one can only imagine the look he received. Of course the Prime Minister would not follow through. He would be an idiot to do so. Because when the people calmed down, they would realize that only the Prime Minister had the authority to coordinate army and naval matters on such a large scale as a second front. Asquith may have had the authority to thwart Churchill, but not Parliament, especially if their blood was up, which it wasn't, but the next best thing was their curiosity, and that was definitely rising day by day. Just what had happened anyway? And that curiosity soared into the stratosphere when, in mid-July of 1916, Asquith made the announcement that, quote, the presentation of these papers must be postponed, unquote, because, quote, omissions so numerous and so important that the papers actually presented would be incomplete and misleading, unquote. But it was the head of the national government that was being misleading, and it wouldn't stand. Soon after, Edward Carson of Ireland, who was once Winston's deadly enemy, led the cause of releasing all information. His assault was made all the stronger because not only had the Prime Minister promised to make all clear, but that pledge was backed by Bonar Law, the leader of the Tories. So were both leaders and their parties reneging on their pledge? It was then that Lloyd George 
well on his way to achieving his goal, having just been promoted, suggested the compromise that a secret committee be set up to hear statements and review all papers. And Asquith, knowing some give was required, agreed. A commission of eight leading citizens, led by Lord Cromer, would look into the evidence and hopefully discover what was knowable. Churchill, understandably, was not happy with this. Still, he would be able to testify and put forth evidence. It would also be his only chance, and so had to make the best of a bad job. Quote, I am hopeful that the truth may be published, but failure and tragedy are all that are left to divide. Unquote. The first hearing of the commission was held on August 17, 1916. As Churchill presented his case and offered up documents and other writings to show his limited participation, he knew he was treading a minefield laid over quicksand. First, he had to dodge Kitchener's role in this, though his was a large and competent one. Next, he had to make sure not to attack the military, as a field marshal, an admiral, and a captain sat on the commission. But while dodging these political sinkholes, Churchill still managed to make five important points, and two of them being, one, the campaign had the full authority of the War Council, not just his, and two, the military was not compromised by the resources used in the East. Other witnesses put forth their views or were brought forward for questioning, and Winston admitted, as the months went by, that he felt the better for what he was hearing. The one person who felt the exact opposite was the one man with the most to hide and to lose, the Prime Minister. By the end of November, it was clear to the Commission and to the people, as rumors leaked out from that Board of Inquiry, that Asquith never accepted his full share of the responsibility. And using this newfound dissatisfaction, Lloyd George and the Tories forced Asquith from his office. His resignation was offered up and accepted. But as the other non-conservatives in the cabinet did not like the way Asquith was outed, they all resigned in protest, which left the new prime minister with a cabinet full of Tories. Well, being prime minister surrounded by your enemies was better than not being prime minister, right? Which is perhaps what Lloyd George thought as he took over the government on December 7th, 1916. And Winston, seeing how the commission was going, the ousting of Asquith, thought he would have his choice of positions in Lloyd George's new government. But then the slots started filling up. Balfour left the Admiralty and was given the Foreign Office. Bonar Law became Chancellor of the Exchequer, which made him the leader of the House and second only to Lloyd George, which left the Admiralty open, and Winston desperately wanted it back. But it would never happen, especially with Tories dominating the Cabinet. Lloyd George thought momentarily of giving the post to Churchill anyway, but with the newspapers still blaming him for the Dardanelles, as no official ruling had been released yet, and Balfour and Law claiming they would never work with Winston, the almost offered hand of respect and friendship was withdrawn. Still, the Welsh radical had a plan for Winston. Perhaps he could be Minister of Air, but it was not yet created, 
despite all the talk, and Lloyd George did not get round to creating it, so there was nothing to offer his one-time friend and colleague. Then, in a bizarre twist of cruelty, or perhaps a breakdown in common sense, Lloyd George invited Winston and others to a lunch that would end when the new leader left them to see the king and be instructed to form a new government. Winston, having been invited, thought this could only mean he was going to be offered a position. Otherwise, why be invited to talk about something he would not be a part of? But then Lloyd George said his goodbyes, asked Max Aiken to join him, and departed. Winston was left confused, but too dazed to react. In the ride over, Lloyd George asked Aiken to convey to Winston when he returned that he would indeed not be a part of the new government. Aiken was crushed to be given this task, but also he was hoping for a position. So it was a bitter Aiken who returned to the lunch and said to Winston, quote, The new government will be very well disposed toward you. All your friends will be there. You will have a great field of common action with them. Unquote. It took a minute or two for the meaning behind the words to sink into Winston's mind. But when they did, he made up for it by standing and verbally attacking Aiken with all his might and passion. Of course, Winston called the next day and apologized to the man. His anger was for Lloyd George, but Aiken received it in his stead. The wounded party replied that Winston need not bother to call. He understood his disappointment as he himself had been expected. But Churchill's equilibrium quickly righted itself when he mused over the fact that, soon, the former liberal members of the cabinet would desire to be his friend, as they assumed he would be going after the new prime minister and his Tory friends. But Winston had a surprise for them. He planned on distancing himself equally from them and the new government. Quote, I intend to sit in a corner seat in a kind of isolation, unquote. Still, Winston did not have the full measure of this new Lloyd George, not just yet. But Clementine did. She wrote, quote, at one time he abused the dukes to please the working men. Now he has abused the working men to please the soldiers, unquote. And now that Lloyd George was on top, he planned on staying there with a stronger persecution of the war. As if, perhaps, it could have been over by now, if only Asquith had done something differently. So, when Lloyd George put the question to the military, Haig replied that the prospects for 1917 were, quote, unquote, excellent. And his chief of staff replied, quote, quite frankly, I can only say that I'm surprised that the question should be asked, unquote. And it's probably worth pointing out here, and of course, this is with hindsight. But still, Douglas Haig's view of this war, and probably all future wars, was like this. In order to win, one nation had to gather up as many of their men as they could, charge the enemy, who would, of course, fight back. But the other side would lose men and use up their ammunition. And if this cycle could be produced over and over, although it would mean severe losses for the attacker, it would break the other side, who would hopefully not be willing to sustain such losses. Now, we all know this is an oversimplification of his view, but in essence, it was that simple and straightforward. 
His job, as Haig saw it, was to get on with it. As the war for the year 1917 was being planned out, Winston, with all his insight and experience, could have been most helpful. But he was still on the outs with the military and the Tories. But the pressure he was under was about to lift, somewhat, when the Commission released its interim report in January of the new year, saying that Winston, besides believing way too much in the success of the Dardanelles plan, was not to blame. That was left for Asquith and Kitchener. The former Prime Minister let the War Council drift, did not demand or squeeze from it efficiency or decisiveness. Kitchener, on the other hand, was almost criminal with his delay of sending in troops, which Churchill had officially protested against. Three months later, the full report came out. Churchill could not be blamed for any, quote, incorrect, unquote, behavior. And with this, Winston had regained some of his former esteem, within the House of Commons anyway. But as far as the public was concerned, hatred of him was established. It was hard for many of them to change their held views. Others just kept on hating him, but found other reasons to do so. Still, when Winston spoke in the House now, the audiences were larger and more respectful. Bonar Law found that a Winston against him was a thing to behold. Lloyd George had previously asked the new foreign minister if Churchill was easier to deal with by his side or standing against you. Law answered he was easier to fight. But now he saw for himself the subtle message Lloyd George was trying to convey with his question. As Churchill's well, not popularity, but a grudging respect built up around him, Lloyd George finally invited him to 10 Downing Street on June 18, 1917. It had been a long wait, and Winston needed not have bothered coming. Lloyd George said that he was pleased with his friend's rise and would try very hard to get back the Duchy of Lancaster position for him. But Winston, thinking higher of himself and his abilities, turned down the possibility right then and there. And slowly, slowly, Winston's views were held in higher esteems of an ever-widening circle, while Lloyd George was becoming the very thing these two former colleagues, in times past, had attacked with a passion. For example, the newspaper The Nation printed an article declaring that the Tommies were being outmaneuvered by the enemy during a particular battle, which meant that either there were more than necessary British deaths or fewer German ones. The military wanted any follow-up articles suppressed, and Lloyd George, the once fiery radical, agreed. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio. 
with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Privately, he wrote what a crime was being committed with the persecution of the war, but the people couldn't bear the truth. Besides, the censors wouldn't let it get through anyway. Quote, if people really knew the war would be stopped tomorrow. But of course they don't and can't know. I feel I can't go on any longer with this bloody business. Unquote. But of course, he did go on. Most people in power do. Besides, what choice did he have? What choice did any of them have now that the cycle had begun? But that's a question best left for the historian or a political theorist or someone wiser. After Lloyd George suppressed the newspaper during a House session, he left the floor, disgusted with himself. Bonarlaw tried to take his place, to rage at the paper, but Churchill stepped in first. Quote, Do not look for quarrels. Do not make them. Make it easy for every party, every force in this country, to give you its aid and support, and remove barriers and obstructions and misunderstandings that tend to be superficial and apparent divergence among men whose aim is all directed to our common object of victory, unquote. And that victory seemed more possible than it had for a long time. That's because just before Winston made this plea, the United States had just declared war on Germany. But Haig saw their entry in another light. He saw their cousins from across the Atlantic as a challenge and therefore was determined to win outright before the Americans could send over an army. On June 10th, he wrote in his diary, quote, There must be no thought of staying our hand until America puts an army in the field next year. Unquote. This, of course, flew in the face of all those weary of the war, with its seemingly endless lists of casualties. And Churchill counted himself among their number. During a secret session of the House, the month before, Winston said, quote, Is it not obvious that we ought not to squander the remaining armies of France and Britain in precipitate offenses before the American power begins to be felt on the battlefield? We have not the numerical superiority. We have no marked artillery preponderance. We have not got the number of tanks which we need. We have not established superiority in the air. We have discovered neither the mechanical nor the technical methods of piercing an indefinite succession of fortified lines defended by German troops, unquote. But this did not stop Haig. That would be left for the Germans. Lloyd George agreed with Churchill's assessment, but had already agreed to Haig's coming attack in Flanders. Still, he found his equilibrium when Winston spoke. The man was saying what the Prime Minister was only thinking. It was time to bring Winston in, closer to the place where decisions were being made. 
Subsequently, Churchill found himself, with more regularity, being invited to 10 Downing Street and consulted over ever more detailed questions about the war. And this relationship became official on July 17, 1917, when Lloyd George made Winston the Minister of Munitions. And knowing the reaction this would generate, Lloyd George told exactly zero of his Tory colleagues. He left that for the newspapers to do. And when they did, 40 conservative MPs stormed into Bonal Law's office, saying, well, this would not stand. Law's anger matched theirs, but he bluntly told them, this appointment was not enough to bring down the government. Now, this promotion meant a by-election for Winston, but as the voters were about to find out, as were his fellow MPs, Winston was a changed man. The barely contained haughty firestorm of a man that had caused such havoc for his enemies was back. Winston suddenly looked years younger than his 42, and that voice that adversaries shied away from rose to the rafters of the commons. And fate decided to agree with this better turn of events. Clementine was pregnant with their fourth child, and the house they had wanted back at 33 Eccleston Square had become available, and Winston pounced on it. He also bought a second home, a grey stone cottage at Lollenden, near East Grinstead, in Kent. And his good fortune continued. On July 29th, Winston was re-elected in Dundee with more than 5,000 votes over his challenger. He had been out of office for some 20 months, but now, when he was back. But having just won over a large group of people, he had that same exact task again before him as he took up control of munitions. So, convening his first meeting with many of the 12,000 civil servants and their 50 departments, Winston started off by saying he assumed by the looks on most of their faces that he was starting, quote, at scratch in the popularity stakes, unquote. The joke was for them. He was not quelled by their attitude or their numbers, and so he jumped into his view of their future. In short, he spoke with his usual force, eloquence, and good cheer, and he placed before them a challenge. If any department outside the military could make a difference in this war, it was them, the collective them, as he was now one of them, and wanted to know whether they were with him or not. When he was done, cheers rang out, which was fortunate because the task before them was prodigious. Not only were they responsible for weapons like airplanes, tanks, artilleries, and shells, but also railroads. But even that was just the beginning. The Americans were sending over 48 divisions, six armies, and besides rifles, they would need at least 12,000 artillery pieces of their own. And it was up to Winston and his new personal empire to get the job done. Soon, there was a $100 million contract between Great Britain and the United States, and Winston signed for the British. But during all this, Churchill, with his usual, but certainly not average, energy, took to reorganizing his branch of the government. The 50 departments were reduced to 12, with each one given a letter for its designation. Finance became Department F, Design D, 
projectiles, P, explosive X, and the like. And from this organization, his goal was simply, quote, masses of guns, mountains of shells, clouds of airplanes, unquote. And as charity starts at home, so does conflict. There were those in Britain that wanted to ban the use of poisonous gas. The majority of the French military were of a similar mind. But Winston, having only victory in his crosshairs, said to agree to this was to be at a disadvantage, and he pushed his view to victory. By 1918, one out of every three shells launched contained poisonous gas. Winston had the same amount of compassion for those British workers who threatened to strike. His reaction was, okay, if you don't want to work for the war effort, you will become a part of the war effort. He threatened to revoke their exemption from military service. During his early time as the munitions minister, ideas flowed from the man. Many were completely impractical, but two stood the test of time and made a difference in the next war. The amphibious landing craft and the man-made Mulberry Mooring, a portable temporary harbor. And then, of course, there's the tank. But Churchill told a royal commission after the war that, as his time and ideas were during working for the state, he did not feel it was right to claim any reward. Still, the commission found, quote, It seems proper that the above view should be recorded by way of tribute to Mr. Winston Churchill, unquote. But Haig completely disagreed with the priority Churchill gave the tank, and they certainly weren't a large part of his plan for his Flanders Offensive in 1917, which put into motion the Third Battle of Ypres, or as the men who did the fighting called it, the Battle of Passchendaele. The idea was to lunge at the Germans, push them back, of course, why this should work when it hadn't before, we'll just ignore, and retake the channel ports of Austin, Zeebrugge, and Antwerp. Besides, argued Haig, even if this massive assault doesn't work, quote, our purpose of wearing him down will be given effect to, unquote. In other words, as long as German soldiers died, mindless of how many of his died, then the main tenet of attrition would be upheld. Haig's attrition started at the end of July 1917, lasted for three months, and the British captured the town of Passchendaele, but just barely. However, the men paid a price for it. Their opening bombardment took out the Flemish drainage system, which meant the refuse found its way into the trenches, which the victors had to live in. By the beginning of November, the victorious British had suffered 448,614 casualties, with 150,000 of those dead. What army could afford such victories? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And Winston, though not on the War Council, had access to the casualty lists. 
Haig and his generals were telling the newspapers that the Germans had suffered tremendous casualties during this British victory. Winston wanted to scream, Isn't our 400,000 a tremendous number? But instead put to Haig, quote, If we lose three or four times as many officers and nearly twice as many men in our attack as the enemy in his defense, how are we wearing him down? Unquote. Haig prevaricated but in the end claimed that his attack had saved the French who were defending Paris. To which Churchill responded, that was not how you saved an Allied army, by destroying your own. You do it by using tanks that are meant to replace large numbers of men. That's what they're for. He specifically meant the Battle of Cambrai, in where 381 tanks broke through the enemy's line along a six-mile front, took more than 42 square miles, captured 10,000 German prisoners, all at the cost of 1,500 British soldiers. That was how this war was going to be won, not by Haig's fighting, quote, machine gun bullets with the breasts of gallant men, unquote. But battles like Cambrai were the exception. It was mostly done Haig's way, and Lloyd George, though hating himself, backed his BEF commander, whom the Prime Minister promoted to Field Marshal. But then the Field Marshal was forced to go on the defensive. The Germans had attacked the Italians along the Julian Alps and shattered their defensive line there. This was in late October. The Italian commander was sacked after losing 800,000 men. The British War Council, realizing they were about to lose an ally, overrode Haig's desire and ordered five divisions through the tunnels under the Alps to help their devastated comrades, who were now unable to launch an offensive. During this, a bloody revolution broke out in Russia on November 6th. Though there were many parties, all opposed to the Tsar, normally at each other's throats, they all agreed that, after nine million Russian soldiers had been lost, it was time to quit the war which led to Trotsky agreeing to the Kaiser's harsh terms, which left the Germans with 3,000 guns and a million men free to launch a massive offensive in the West. All the Allies could do now was dig in and wait. Certainly they were too exhausted to launch a preemptive offensive of their own. But again, as in times past, Churchill found unfortunate events like this as a challenge to be overcome. He proposed, and it was accepted, to send American soldiers over sooner and have their training conducted here to save time. And though a large number of tanks wouldn't be ready until sometime in 1918, he would make sure that his own countrymen and the coming Americans had more than enough artillery pieces and shells. And as Winston was spending so much time with Lloyd George, he predicted to the Prime Minister that the great offensive of the Central Powers would begin during the third week of February, 1918. He was wrong, but only by a month. Hindenburg launched his Kaiserschlacht, or Kaiser's Battle, on March 21, 1918. And because Winston was off by a month, he was practically at the front line when it came. The German assault, where he was, would be the second of three Hindenburg planned that would hopefully separate the British forces from the French. Then he would hold the British at bay while destroying the French armies. 
and now he had the manpower to do it. On Lloyd George's request, Winston crossed the channel on March 18th, three days before the massive assault was to start, and met with Haig. Looking at a map, the two men agreed that the Germans would hit where the British were vastly outnumbered, along a 50-mile stretch of the front, which the British had recently taken over from the French. The British were outnumbered here because Louis George had held men back from Hague so as to stop his field marshal from launching another foolish offensive. And the Germans knew this. Along those 50 miles, the British line was held with 57 divisions. The Germans facing them had 110. So Winston, being Winston, decided to take a closer look for himself. Leaving Hague at three that afternoon, Churchill went to the headquarters of the 9th Division, stationed at Nurlu, led by a fellow subaltern from India, Major General Henry Tudor. The next day, the two men walked the trenches, each knowing what was coming. As they were turning in that Wednesday night, Tudor reported to Winston, quote, It's certainly coming now. Trench raids this evening have identified no less than eight enemy battalions on a single half-mile front, unquote. After this news, Winston was still somehow able to sleep, but woke up at 4 a.m. Thursday morning, March 21st. He lay there listening, trying not to let his imagination run away with him. That led to panic. But he didn't have to do this for long. The silence and the waiting came to an end at 4.40 a.m. And then, exactly as a pianist runs his hands across the keyboard from treble to bass, there rose in less than one minute the most tremendous cannonade I shall ever hear. Tudor found Winston outside his billet a few minutes later. Quote, this is it. I have ordered all our batteries to open fire. You will hear them in a minute. Unquote. But they never did. Because, quote, the crash of the German shells bursting on our trench lines 8,000 yards away was so overpowering that the accession to the tumult of nearly 200 guns firing from much nearer could not even be distinguished. Unquote. Then, just after 6 a.m., a half million German soldiers, outnumbering the defenders three or four to one, emerged from a thick fog and came at the men along the line. It was time for Winston to go. Soon Ludendorff had the British reeling backwards, and communications between themselves and the French were gone. The trick now was to see if the Germans could sever where the British and French lines touched at Amiens. Greetings, everyone. So uh, in order to get ready for the tour and to make sure I beat Terrence uh, at knowing more than he does about the Battle of Britain, I've been doing a lot of research. And here's two clips I'd like to play for you from, from that time. The first one is um, the, um, some of the men who were fighting the fires as, uh, as the Blitz was going on. And the second clip is about the people who had to go down into the tunnels, mostly women and children, and kind of what they were going through. So it's a, it's a, it's a clip from the time, and I just think it kind of adds a lot of color to what we'll be experiencing on the tour. As I walked along the streets, it was almost impossible to believe that these fires could be subdued. I was walking between solid walls of fire. Roofs of shops and office buildings came down with a roaring crash. Panes of glass were cracking everywhere from the heat. 
and every street was crisscrossed with innumerable lengths of hose. Men were fighting the fires from the top of hundred foot ladders, shot up from the street. Others were pushing their way into the burning buildings, taking the jet to the core of the fire. Sparks were driving down the street like a heavy snowstorm. Obviously, small children couldn't walk across to the station in this. And so some of us went backwards and forwards, carrying them in our arms. I took off my Macintosh and covered them up completely with it. It must have been rather frightening for them to be carried across by someone they didn't know and not being able to see anything. But it was the only way to protect them from those sparks. And by the time we got the last one across, we should have had to do it anyway, because the building above the station was on fire. Luckily, the station escaped, and they were all moved off in trains to get food and drink. There are 279,000 children still in London. And whilst I'm sure they're not all here, quite a number are. Down here on the platforms of the famous Piccadilly Tube in the heart of London's West End. It's one of the saddest results of the war that women, children and men, in that order, men are in the minority here, have to be here at all. Many are bombed out of their homes, all look tired, but they feel safe here, a good hundred feet below ground, and their spirits of fortitude are simply grand. On September 15th, 1940, London held its breath. 200 heavily armed German bombers were approaching. And if Hitler could destroy Churchill's air defenses, the path to invasion lay open. All records of sightings were channeled into the plotting room. First reports of German aircraft came from radar stations on the coast. These were then translated into map positions by plotters like Jones. If they were enemy aircraft, it would say H, hostile, and it would say how many aircraft there were and at what height they were flying. As soon as they touched the coast, the observer corps took over and picked up the aircraft, and they passed them to fighter command headquarters. The station controller reacted to the latest information. He sent up fighter squadrons to intercept the German raiders. Churchill knew it was make or break. This was the pivotal day of the Battle of Britain. Churchill sat there absolutely enthralled as the plotters pushed the indicators across the board and as the lights lit up to show the Germans coming and the British squadrons rising to fight them. You can imagine it would become extremely busy because then we come across our own squadrons here. 303 has come from Northhold, and that means there are 22 aircraft in it flying at 22,000 feet. So the controller could get them up to the right height to oppose the enemy aircraft coming in. Facing over 200 German aircraft, Uxbridge threw everything it had into the fray. It became almost impossible to find space to put these blocks all together. And the plots were all getting mixed up and you'd get mixed up with your person next door. It was a madhouse. It was really was. At one crucial moment during this extraordinarily tense, dramatic time, Air Vice Marshal Park, who was in charge of the whole operation, 
told him that there were no more reserves. Every available fighter plane was committed to the battle. Both the British and the Germans suffered heavily through the day. There were wild claims from each side over the number of planes shot down. Churchill was intensely moved by the Uxbridge experience, and he went home excited, elated, exhausted, thinking that the British claims that we had shot down 185 German aircraft was correct. It wasn't correct. We'd shot down about a third of that, about 60. Nevertheless, it was the culmination of the Battle of Britain, something that he had witnessed at first hand. And it marked the end, really, of the German attempt to attack Britain by air during the daylight. Greetings, everyone, again, from Central Virginia. So before I let you go, just want to thank some members um, for supporting the show and hope you enjoy the podcast. Um, so the first one is Victor R. from Santa Cruz, California. Um, you own a V, who is a Greek living in Cyprus. Thank you for writing. Uh, Robert G. from Buck- Buckinghamshire, UK. Andreas L. from Luea, Sweden. I'm sure I butchered that. Sorry. Uh, Janet M. from Plainfield, Indianapolis. Uh, Ennis C. from Atlanta, Georgia. And last but not least, David C. for his donation from uh, Watson, Australia. So thank you, everyone. And I'll be out with episode 99 just as soon as I can. Take care, everyone. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.